in his death and resurrection, Jesus has finally liberated us from the dominance of sin as well as from the guilt of sin. And we also have the hope of looking forward to being fully liberated from the corruption of sin when we see him as he is and we become like him. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 137 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to let you know about our upcoming course on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth with Pastor John Barrage. This course will be from May 14th through 18th. To get more information about this course, you can go to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and go under Events. Or we've made it easier for you, and there's a link to the class in the show notes. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lighthart is going to be discussing the texts for the third Sunday in the Easter season, 2018. We really hope that you enjoy this discussion over these texts, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart. I'm here with Brian Motes, and today we're discussing the readings for the third Sunday of the Easter season. That's April 15th, Tax Day, in 2018. And the readings that we have on our uh, lectionary for this week are Acts 3, verses 11 through 21. That's in lieu of an Old Testament reading. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 7. And then the latter part of Luke 24, verses 36 to 49. And of course, we're still in the Easter season with these readings, and so they're still having to do with various aspects of the event of Easter and the aftermath of Easter. Uh, the Acts passage, of course, is a post-Pentecost event. It's in Acts 3, uh, but it's a passage that's about the continuing work of the apostles. They continue to do the work of Jesus. The Luke passage is the very end of Luke's gospel, where we have uh, the last of Jesus' appearances on uh, Easter after his resurrection. Uh, and First uh, John 3 is concerned, among other things, with our future transformation into the likeness of Jesus. When we see him as he is, then we will be like him. And so there's a, an eschatological thrust to the passage in First John that's describing uh, our, our future resurrection and our conformity to the image of Christ. But I'll start with an Acts passage, Acts 3, verses 11 through 21. Um, and uh, we've talked about Acts before just uh, to reset or to set some context for Acts. Acts is obviously the second book of Luke's account of Jesus as, as his, in his beginning and also as he continues through the Spirit and through the church. The two books function together in various ways. Uh, they run parallel to each other. Uh, in another sense, they're running end-to-end, or that, that, that it's just one continuous narrative. And you can particularly see this in the geographic movement of the two books. Uh, Luke is a book that uh, where everything progresses toward Jerusalem. The uh, infancy narratives at the beginning of Luke end with Jesus in Jerusalem at the age of 12, teaching and listening in the temple. And then uh, in the middle of Luke, you have this lengthy journey narrative from chapters 9 through 19 where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and that ends with his triumphal entry and his occupation of the temple, his cleansing of the temple, and then he occupies the temple uh, for uh, a few days and then goes out to the Mount of Olives. 
and then the book, the whole book, as we'll see a little bit later, ends with uh, the disciples going back to Jerusalem. They're in the temple. Uh, Luke ends where the uh, the gospel begins. Uh, the gospel begins with a priest in the temple, Zechariah, an angel appearing to him. He's struck dumb, and the gospel of Luke ends with the apostles going back to uh, Jerusalem to the temple and no longer silent but now rejoicing because the Messiah has come and they've seen his seen him in his resurrection so everything is moving uh, toward Jerusalem in the gospel of Luke and that's where we begin in the first few chapters of Acts from Acts 1 through 6 you're we're still in Jerusalem still concerned with the Jerusalem church and after the martyrdom of Stephen then the action begins to move out as uh, the Christians in Jerusalem begin to disperse from Jerusalem. Uh, they go to Samaria and eventually get to Antioch. And, of course, Paul eventually makes a trip to Rome at the end of the book. Uh, so you have this uh, uh, movement toward Jerusalem and then a dispersal from Jerusalem that sets the geography of the of the whole. And within Acts, you have several phases. Um, we had Jeff Myers here recently uh, in uh, visiting Theopolis teaching on the book of Acts. And uh, he pointed out that Acts follows a, uh, a general sequence of priest-king-prophet. That's a sequence that is, uh, structures a lot of the Bible. It's uh, laid out in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, it's laid out in the original for- format and the original mapping of the creation. It's a way of thinking about the progression of uh, Israel's history as you move from the priestly covenant with Moses to the monarchy the Davidic covenant kingship uh, to the exilic and post-exilic covenant, which centers on prophecy. And um, uh, Jeff pointed out that the book of Acts follows that sequence. It kind of recapitulates that sequence. And the apostles are going through those different phases. And uh, the reading for this third Sunday of the Easter season in Acts 3 is taking place within that initial phase, which is the priestly phase. Uh, Events are taking place at the temple, both the reading for this week and the reading for uh, next week on the fourth Sunday of Easter in Acts 4, also having to do with the temple. The opponents are uh, temple authorities. The sin is that uh, the apostles keep coming back to is the sin of attacking the Holy One of God. The, uh, they put to death the Lord of life, uh, and uh, that's the charge. The Holy and Righteous One is the way Peter puts it in Acts 3. Uh, the Prince of Life is the one that they put to death. And uh, the, so the charge is, uh, against the Jews is a sin of sacrilege where they're killing the Holy One of God and uh, misusing God's Holy One. Um, and then after Stephen's martyrdom, they begin to move out and you enter into a different geography and a different place. You're outside the temple. The conflicts are different. You're in more of a brother-brother conflict rather than a conflict over uh, uh, control and direction of the temple. Uh, so that's the general setting for the Acts 3 passage that's uh, uh, given for this week. Uh, a couple of details that are, we can look at. Uh, this is one of, the, uh, one of the many places we find in Acts where the apostles are carrying on the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Peter and John go to the temple, and there's a lame man there, and they heal him with a word. They heal him in the name of Jesus. Uh, they do a, a Jesus-like miracle now in the name of Jesus. Uh, they've uh, received the Spirit, and so they have the power to continue to do uh, the works of Jesus. And it's significant that they do this in the temple because, like Jesus, they're using the temple area as a place of healing, uh, for releasing burdens, for giving life, uh, in contrast to the 
temple authorities who uh, are using the law to uh, oppress and to burden and to and to kill. Uh, that's been a theme. That's the theme through all the through all the gospels, and uh, now we find that the uh, apostles are in the temple doing the same kinds of things that Jesus did in the temple. Of course, that provokes the uh, provokes the Jews once the Peter and John have healed this man in the name of Jesus. Uh, there's opposition to them, and uh, Peter uh, has a chance to uh, preach both here and in next week's passage. There's a a sermon in both of them. There's a focus on the sin of putting Jesus to death. As I've already mentioned, he charges the Jewish leaders with disowning the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the sanctified one, but the Jews don't want to receive him. They put to death the prince of life. But the, as Peter goes on, he uh, says that they, he, he knows that they acted in ignorance. This wasn't, a, this wasn't a sin. It wasn't a high-handed sin the same way that it'll be, uh, it will be for those who reject the apostles. That's one of the structures of, Acts, uh, of Luke and Acts, where you have uh, Jesus coming as the Son of Man. He gives the initial witness. Uh, blaspheming the Son of Man will be forgiven. That's a sin of ignorance. But then when the apostles come in the power of the Spirit and they preach and witness a second time, that second witness, if the Jews reject that second witness, then they'll, they'll be condemned. And that's uh, the uh, import of what Peter says uh, in Acts 3. Acts 3. I know that you acted in ignorance, uh, just as your rulers did also, he says, uh, but the things that God announced beforehand are now being fulfilled. You acted in ignorance, now is the time to repent. You have another chance because you sinned against the Son of Man, and that's not an unforgivable sin. Don't sin against the Spirit. Uh, Don't uh, oppose the Spirit and the apostles. The center of Peter's preaching here, as the center of all apostolic preaching, is the death and exaltation of Jesus the death and resurrection, it's, and it's important to see, as I've pointed out before on the podcast, that the apostolic preaching doesn't uh, end with the cross. The uh, apostles don't say that uh, Jesus died on the cross, and that's sufficient without the resurrection. Uh, I made this point a couple weeks ago uh, when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 15. A dead Christ is not a saving Christ. If he's not raised, then you're still in our then we're still in our sins. Were of all men most to be pitied. And so the preaching of the apostles in Acts, as here with Peter, is not just about the death of Jesus and the culpability of the Jews, but it's about the fact that Jesus has now been raised. The holy and righteous one, the prince of life, has been raised up. Um, that's good news because he's overcome death, but it's also scary news for the Jews because they're the ones who put him to death. Uh, but they still, again, have a, have a chance to repent. If they do, there'll be times of refreshing and then Peter ends the sermon by uh, quoting from Deuteronomy 18 and uh, Moses' prediction of a prophet who will come like himself, and uh, that includes a warning not to reject the prophet uh, like Moses that's going to arrive later. Um, so that this is a, a, a an Easter season passage in a couple of ways. Peter preaches about the resurrection, uh, but perhaps more importantly, it's in the context where the disciples are communicating resurrection life They've received the spirit of Jesus, and so they've now become conduits of that resurrection life to those around them. Um, since I've already talked about the uh, Luke passage a little bit, uh, let me go to the gospel reading. Uh, the very end of Luke 24, beginning of verse 36, is the, the final appearance of Jesus on Easter. Uh, and it resembles the appearance of Jesus to the men on the road to Emmaus in a couple of ways, uh, or the disciples. We don't know if they were... Uh, both men or not. 
Now, the two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus that Jesus appears to, teaches and then breaks bread with them. And Jesus does the same things when he appears to the 11 disciples here in uh, at the end of Luke 24. He, first of all, tells them not to fear. They shouldn't be troubled. Uh, they shouldn't think that he's a ghost or a spirit. He uses the phrase flesh and bones. Spirits don't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So Jesus has is embodied in some way. Uh, Jesus is available as, to his disciples in uh, a physical, visible form that they can touch and see. Um, he eats with them and specifically eats a fish. That's um, an... Uh, a regular part of Jesus' diet, uh, which in biblical perspective is a kind of a resting fact. Uh, Jesus is uh, the incarnation of Yahweh. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh has consumed the verb in the Hebrew is eat. He's consumed the sacrifices on the altar, but these are all land animals. They're all um, sheep, goats, bulls, birds. Uh, you don't have any sacrificial fish in the Old Testament, but then Jesus comes and uh, surely he ate other things, but most of the time when we see Jesus eating, he's eating fish. Not eating the land animals, but eating, eating uh, fish from the sea, which is, I think, a sign of incorporation of the Gentiles into the body of Jesus. Uh, and he does that again here. After his resurrection, he asks for something to eat, and they bring him some fish, and he ate it before them. So there's a, there's a moment of communion. That's a part of the image is that Jesus is eating with his disciples after his resurrection, but uh, there's this specific uh, indication that Jesus is uh, now the God of, uh, he's the one who's going to incorporate Jews and Gentiles, people of the land and people of the sea into his body. And then also like the, uh, as on the road to Emmaus, Jesus begins to teach his disciples. And both in that, the scene when, on the road to Emmaus and again here right at the end of Luke 24, uh, we're told that Jesus uh, teaches them everything about himself throughout the scriptures. He begins with Moses and he talks about the prophets and the Psalms. For the for Jews, that covers the entire Old Testament. The law of Moses would include the whole uh, of the Pentateuch. The prophets would include what we think, think of as historical books as well as prophetic books. And then the Psalms would include the poetry and writings of the Old Testament. That's a classification that would include the entire scriptures. And Jesus gives us his summary of the entire Old Testament when he says that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's Jesus' uh, praise of the entire Old Testament. Uh, that's what the, everything from Moses through the last book of the Old Testament has been about. It's been, all been about the sufferings and the glory of Christ and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that the nations will receive forgiveness of sins through this seed of Abraham. Uh, at the very end of Luke, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, uh, the disciples go back to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke doesn't end like Matthew does with the Great Commission. Um, the dispersal of the disciples in Luke-Acts begins after Stephen's death. Uh, but in Luke's gospel, uh, they're told to go back to Jerusalem to wait for uh, the power that will come from on high. They'll be clothed with power from God. That's the promise of the gift of the Spirit. Uh, and in the meantime, they go back to Jerusalem, and they're in the temple praising God. And as I said uh, a few minutes ago, that c closes out the Gospel of Luke, where Luke actually started uh, in the temple uh, with worship of God in the temple. But now their tongues are loosed in a way that uh, 
Zechariasis was not. Zechariasis struck dumb because of his unbelief at the beginning of the book. Uh, here at the end, the disciples believe in the risen Christ, and they are filled with joy, and their tongues are loosed in singing. First John 3, um, this is breaking into a, uh, yeah, the, letter, the first letter of John. Uh, John's uh, letters are, are generally uh, difficult to... Um, uh, difficult to outline. Uh, he he has a a kind of a repetitive spiral kind of structure to a lot of what he writes. Uh, seems to go around not in circles, but he seems to come back to the same themes over and over again. He progresses, but there's this kind of spiral movement that uh, characterizes much of the book. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to uh, exactly set the context uh, from the previous from the previous chapter. Um, but John addresses his readers as children of God. Um, that means that they have God as their heavenly father. It means that they are children in, in the son. The father has an eternal son. And uh, by the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, disciples are incorporated into that son and become children. Uh, that's also, if you look at the deeper Old Testament background, to call the disciples of Jesus the children of God is to say that they are the true Israel. Israel was the original son of God, and now uh, the um, now those who are in Jesus are uh, constitute the true Israel. Uh, and as children of God, John says that we should uh, resemble our Father. Um, if we're children of God, then we should uh, uh, be what uh, be as He is. Uh, there should be a family resemblance between uh, our Father and uh, and us. One of the one of the ways that we resemble God, and particularly the way we resemble J- Jesus, is by being indecipherable to the world. Uh, it says that uh, the uh, world did not know uh, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Jesus came into the world and was rejected. I think in in John's writings the the term world often specifically connotes the world of Judaism. Jesus came, the, the word that became flesh came to his own and his own did not receive him, came to his own people, entered that world of Judaism, and they didn't know him. And I think Paul, uh, John rather in his first epistle is addressing uh, disciples in something like the same situation where they're uh, still in the context of largely a Jewish Christianity and uh, their disciples are not recognizable in the same way that Jesus was not recognizable to them. As uh, John goes on, he describes the transformation that we have in store for us. We are children of God now, but we don't yet know what we shall be. We can't know ourselves because because what we will be is, uh, what we truly are is what we will be in the future. And uh, we won't be that until we see him as he is and are transformed into his likeness. Uh, I think if you, in John doesn't explicitly mention the resurrection here, but I think in the larger pattern of New Testament teaching, he's referring to conformity to the resurrection. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead, and when he returns and we see him as he is, then we'll, be, uh, we'll share fully in that reality of the new creation, and we'll have resurrection bodies, and we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the hope that we have before us. And it's the hope that um, uh, John says should motivate our uh, pursuit of purity. We should purify ourselves so that we now already resemble 
Jesus uh, so that when we see him, see him as he is, we will become like him. Part of that purification is uh, renouncing sin, obviously. John, in several, in several ways, tells us that we've been liberated from sin. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, you know that he has appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Uh, John is obviously not talking about a life of uh, complete sinlessness. Earlier in the same letter, he's said that if we say that we have no sin, we're, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are supposed to confess our sins so that we can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Uh, so when he comes to chapter 3, he's not contradicting that earlier, those earlier statements. Instead, he's talking about the uh, liberation from the power of sin. Sin's uh, dominance over us has been broken. He's not just talking about the forgiveness of sins, that our sins are not held against us, that we're liberated from the guilt, but he's talking about liberation from the power of sin so that uh, if we, as we abide in Jesus, then we are no longer dominated by sin. And anyone who is dominated by sin and con- continues in a life of sin uh, is uh, not, uh, has not been, is, doesn't know him. Uh, uh, that's part of the family resemblance that uh, uh, John alludes to earlier. If we're children of our Heavenly Father, then we should live as he has called us to, and we should exhibit the righteousness, the same kind of righteousness uh, that he himself has. Um, the, the reading ends in verse 7, but verse 7 really breaks, ends at the, uh, in the middle of a sentence. Um, and the end of, the, end of uh, that thought, I think, is really in, in uh, verse 8. Those who practice sin are of the devil, uh, and the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. There's a stark choice that John is presenting. If we're children of God, then we should resemble our Father. For abiding in Jesus, we can't be dominated by sin. If we're dominated by sin, then we're of our Father, the devil. But we can be liberated from the devil. We can be liberated from sin because the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. In his death and resurrection, Jesus has finally liberated us from the dominance of sin as well as from the guilt of sin. And we also have the hope of looking forward to being fully liberated from the corruption of sin when we see him as he is and we become like him. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.